the Triathlon Show 277. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Leslie Patterson. Leslie is a coach and multiple world champion across Xterra and ITU cross triathlon. And today we discuss her general training and coaching philosophy and principles, as well as some specific advice uh, relating to Xterra and cross triathlon. But uh, do keep in mind that we have a lot of general discussions around training here that applies to everybody. So it's not just for people interested in racing Xterra or cross triathlon. Uh, actually i need to explain uh, a little mishap that i had during this episode as the interviewer and that is that i actually had the wrong uh, the wrong printout with questions in front of me from another <laughs> interview that i had conducted earlier uh, in the same day i believe so uh, so it took me a long while to realize that I was surprised by how few questions I had asked specifically around Xterra and cross triathlon. And uh, yeah, so you may have to wait for quite a bit within this interview until we get to those parts, even though through the general flow of the conversation, we do uh, we, we do include Xterra and cross triathlon references pretty much throughout the interview, I would say. But, uh, but yeah, the actual keeping to the script was a bit not as planned so to say and uh, well you'll notice where i noticed that mistake in the episode but anyway in the end i think we managed to cover pretty much everything that i had wanted to cover and uh, and more even though we could have probably gone on for a lot longer still because it was a really interesting chat uh, but uh, let's get to that right after thanking our sponsors precision hydration uh, if you want to race Xterra or off-road, off-road triathlon, as Leslie says in the interview, it might look like an Olympic distance race when you look at the distances, but in many ways, due to the additional duration of the race in the off-road environment, it is much like a half-distance race in many ways, including nutrition and hydration being really, really critical, uh, even more so than in a normal Olympic distance race. And uh, in particular, let's say you want to go to the World Championships in uh, in Maui, for example, then uh, that's obviously an environment where you will be sweating profusely. And in those sorts of uh, circumstances, long race and hot environment, uh, then replacing your electrolytes is really crucial. And Precision Hydration is here to help you do that. Uh, They make electrolytes in different strengths that you can match to how much uh, sweat you're losing and your individual sweat sodium concentration level. Uh, Go to precisionhydration.com and get a free hydration plan. And that will give you an estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat. And then you can select your electrolyte supplement, whether it should be a light or medium or a strong supplement based on that. And you can get 15% off your order of precision hydration electrolytes with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Roca are the leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. 
Uh, let's do a product highlight here today uh, and uh, this time I want to talk a little bit about the Gen 2 Elite Aero tri-suit. Uh, this is a tri-suit that I've raced in a lot. It is based as usual on fantastic R&D work including wind tunnel testing naturally. Uh, so the suit is uh, designed to balance aerodynamics, comfort and race function in a fantastic way and uh, I've noticed one additional thing that is really really crucial. It has been extremely durable through plenty of racing and not to mention training as well uh, so and just like the roca wetsuits it comes with uh, the arms up technology that helps you retain full mobility through your shoulders in the swimming element of uh, your racing go to roca.com forward slash tts to get 20 percent off your order of any roca products now without any further ado let's get into the interview with leslie patterson Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, Leslie Patterson. Leslie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, it's going to be really good. Uh, I actually recently ran a survey with listeners and uh, a theme that came up uh, with uh, many of the people taking that survey was there are, uh, there is a good, good, strong subset of listeners that want some more extra content. And Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah, and that's that's why you're here today. Even though, as we might talk talk about later, we have some other topics that we might uh, we might return to. Sure. But um, first, start by just introducing yourself uh, to the audience. Yeah. So my name is Leslie Patterson, and I am a five time off road triathlon world champion. So three time in Xterra and two time in ITU Cross, and I am Scottish. Uh, obviously <laughs> and yeah I have many other interests but I've been in the sport of triathlon for a long time it's my therapy it's my love it's my passion so I'm excited to uh, you know give some good information to you guys and uh, yeah hopefully have some fun in this chat yeah awesome so uh, you mentioned there your your five world titles uh, with that kind of storied career and uh, we can uh, reveal for listeners that you've also been you were kind of on the ID, ITU the Olympic track in your younger years as well so you have a, a very long career behind <laughs> you with plenty of successes also some uh, some disappointments I imagine can you give some highlights of things that you think through your career that you did really well and uh, that listeners might benefit from and in contrast also things that you mistakes perhaps that you made and that you wish people can learn from and and not repeat yeah, so um, many, many ups and downs. I mean, literally, I've been in the sport of triathlon since I was about 13 years old, so a long, long time. And um, yeah, so I think some of the highlights, obviously, when you have dreamt of being a world champion and at the top of your sport for, you know, literally since I was four years old, I think, um, when you finally break that tape and win your first, well, for me, my first world title, I think... It was just so special. Um, the race itself was arduous. Uh, it was the first time in my career I'd ever had a flat tire in a race, and I was in the best shape of my life. I was in pole position coming out of the water, and uh, yeah, I had a flat tire on the on the mountain bike, and thought, I, I just don't believe this. And I, I really think that that was a pivotal moment in my entire career of saying, I'm faced with this obstacle. Am I gonna use it, or am I gonna just give up? And I decided to, okay, I can fix this. I can get going. You know, I've lost several minutes, but let's just go as hard as I can and see what happens. Um, I'm fit. I'm healthy. I love what I do. Let's get out here, have fun, and really hit it hard. And I, and I did that and came off the bike, I think, and 
fifth or sixth position, um, something like 10 minutes down on the leader um, going into the run and ended up running into first position with half a mile to go. So it really was a lesson to me about dealing with adversity and keep pushing on, right? Um, so I think that was a huge highlight um, to me. Um, and then, yeah, some of the downfalls, as some of the listeners might know uh, from my history, I've dealt with a lot of health issues. So I was diagnosed with Lyme disease in 2010. And uh, yeah, that's been a very, very hard road along the way, just the ups and downs, the depression, the anxiety. Um, can I ever do this sport again? Um, how can I get back to my top level? What does it mean to me? Why do I do it? All of these kind of existential questions to do with sport. Yeah, and, and how did you deal with with those tough moments? Um, I think it really boils down to your why. Because when you've been at the pinnacle of your career and, you know, pretty much better than I ever thought I could be, and then it's all taken away from you. Um, you develop a lot of gratitude for what you can do. And I think that that can be lost when you do get success. All you strive for is is the outcome instead of the process. You're so worried that you can repeat this outcome again, that you can stay on top, that you can be as good as everyone expects you to be, that as good as you expect yourself to be. Um, so all of that, you have to reframe that. And you have to get back to gratitude for what you can do and getting drilling down on into the why of, of of why you do what you do. And for me, it really is about being outside in the environment, about experiencing my body moving through space and about pushing to the edge, pushing to the edge of my boundaries, whatever that by whatever that is, given my health, given my um, injury, given my, you know, just where I'm at in any given day. And that's sort of the beauty, that line that you that you cross on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that's that's really fantastic to to listen to that little <laughs> uh, paragraph there. I loved it. Uh, and uh, but but that was those were the tough moments in your career that you uh, that you dealt with. What about? Do you have like some m- literal mistake that you made, or like something that maybe you repeatedly made, and that now in hindsight you wish that you had done differently? Uh, something that you can point to and that you yep. that you think a lot of other people might make and you want to warn them from doing um i would say it is overtraining just always push push pushing and i think that that was because of um kind of a low confidence on my part my one of my biggest assets is how hard that i work um and i saw my results as 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 being the reason for this hard you know the reason for that was a hard work and so i therefore thought that you know i have to just work that hard all the time and and as a consequence i've kind of pushed to the edge and it's a double edged sword right i always remember listening to alistair brownlee say i'd rather have had you know two or three years of absolute excellence than 10 or 15 years of mediocrity. So I think you're always balancing on that edge. And to be truly great, you have to push over the edge sometimes. But I think I've probably done that a little bit too much. And then the other piece of it, and I think this is, you know, being a female athlete as well, is just the the body image issues that come with that, the, the eating disorders and the sort of relationship that I have with food, both through my illness and through the sport. That's been a, a, a huge, huge you know, challenge for me because you get addicted to that 
um, level of control. And so your sport becomes not just performance based, it becomes kind of this addictive thing in your life. So there's a lot of sort of mental issues that come with that too. Mm. So, so we're going a bit off script here, actually, and I hope I'm not praying too deep. But since yep. you brought that up, did you? Uh, so, did you suffer from uh, an actual eating disorder, or did you have like general body image issues yourself? What was sort of the the extent of that? I would say that it's probably more disordered eating than an eating disorder. Um, yeah. And again, it's kind of a spectrum, right? Um, but I've never sort of been clinically diagnosed or or taken it to some super duper extremes. I think it's just more body image issues and disordered eating. And I think sport really comes in the middle of that because it's a way of controlling some of that. Um, and it's something I wrestle with all the time. And luckily, I've got a wonderful husband that is also a sports psychologist, right? So um, he can really help me with that. Um, but I think a lot of female athletes and male athletes deal with that because our sport, our endurance sport, is just littered with those pictures of, you know, em- emaciated athletes and how awesome they are and how wonderful they look and all the rest of it. And that comes at a price. And again, especially for female athletes, it comes at the price of hormone damage and issues and all sorts of other bodily function issues uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for uh, those that might be on that spectrum of disordered eating or maybe just general body image issues, what are some, a couple of things that you've found helps you get on the right track with that that you can share? Well, I think it's, again, kind of drilling down on the why you do your sport. And hopefully there's other reasons rather than just body weight. And so focusing on those elements, um, for me, a huge piece also is the social element when I'm training. So having those friends and family around you um, so that there's a lot of joy in your sport and the focus is taken away from sort of sport as a way to to lose weight or be lean. And then also for me, it's kind of the perspective performance aspects so take away what my body looks like and more about how do I best perform um, in my sport and best performing means having a healthy body and that doesn't always mean being five percent body weight I mean body fat Uh, so it's just kind of reframing um, you know, uh, health and sport and, and the relationship that you have with those. Um, and then the other piece for me has been to have other hobbies, other things that really get me passionate about life that take me away from from that sort of obsessive compulsive sport or drive. And um, as you know, I'm in the world of films, so screenwriting and um, creativity and lots of other cool things that take me into other worlds and kind of take me out of that obsessive compulsive state. Yeah, no, that, that's that's all really great. And one thing that I can add here, I've had uh, a discussion with a couple of athletes about weight and its impact, positive and negative. And uh, I'm going to do some hand gestures here so the podcast listeners might not see it. But basically, if there is such a thing as an optimal weight, as soon as you go below it, you get a very steep decline in performance. But go above it, you have a very, like, very slight decline. So actually like the risk with trying to find your optimal weight is that you actually find it and go even a little bit below it. And, oh, yeah. and then 
the uh, the cost of that is just dramatically very, very increased. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think as well, it's also cycling um, your body weight, right? You know, especially as a fit female athlete, but allowing yourself to put that weight on in, in, in more of the off seasons and again, sort of nourish your system so that when you are depleting it or or at least stressing it come, you know, that race, you, you, you're at least kind of backing off at the other times to uh, uh, nourish your body again. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, so these days you are working as a coach, among other things. And uh, let's uh, dig into that a little bit. What does your coaching and training philosophy look like? What are kind of your fu fundamental principles of, of endurance sports coaching? So definitely. So I co-coach with my husband as well. Um, he's a, a sports physiologist as well as sports psychologist. So, uh, which is wonderful. We work the mind and the body. And as you guys might know, we, we wrote a book together called The Brave Athlete, um, which is kind of a brain mental model of, of how you're, you know, the thoughts and feelings that, that, that you have, why you have them and uh, different ways to combat that. But, uh, and that drills down into our philosophy, which is you're more than a data point, right? It's uh, the mental and the physical together and combined that really makes you the best that you can be. And as a consequence, the way that we coach our athletes, we love to get, our, get to know our athletes, to really talk to them. And a lot of it is about, you know, what is their life like around triathlon? Because if we don't really know that, it, it becomes difficult to coach you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and really get the best out of that person. Um, so it really is coaching the whole person. And then um, the other main part of our philosophy is that strength is the cornerstone to speed. So we really believe that muscle durability is the key to endurance sport as a foundation for speed. I'm not saying that strength is everything, but as a foundation, it's absolutely critical. And that was, was the real linchpin in making me the athlete that I became. And then all of the successes uh, we've had with our athletes uh, have, have been founded on that principle. What sort of strength are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, like literal weight training or are we talking about the kind of strength that people refer to with, let's say, Arthur Lydiard having his runners go out and do 100-mile weeks in the hills. That's that's one kind yeah. of strength for yeah, one, one thing. Absolutely. But, but what is what is it you refer to? Yep, it's across the board. There's many different types of strength. So yes, we love our athletes to be in the gym, uh, lifting heavier weights, doing things like deadlifts and squats and step ups and things that are recruiting those prime muscle movers for for power and strength. Also functional strength, so multi-plane movement strength, where it's about tendons and ligaments and efficiency and economy of motion, biomechanics, things like that. And then it's applied strength. So on the bike, we do what's called torque training, the very low cadence, almost like weight training on your bike uh, anywhere from 35 rpms to 60 rpms at varying intensities doing a lot of standing drills as well in fact to recruit your glutes to get your core stability and then to help your running off the bike um so and then on the running side of stuff uh, having athletes do a lot of form hills i think the perception is that hills are for um uh, strength if your course is hilly if the course you're going to be racing on is hilly or if you want to you know they always have to go high, you know really high intensity up up hills uh, but we try and do form hill repeats where it's about you know uh, the, the the muscle recruitment patterns while you're running again the muscle durability the form aspect we do a lot of plyometrics and running drills uh, off the bike as well uh, the mental toughness of that hill and then converting that to speed so again using all of that strength as this platform to then build the speed on top of that as we're coming in towards a race or race specificity at least as we're coming in towards a race 
Yeah, no, that's, that's really great. And uh, and on the first point you mentioned there, we're getting to know the athlete and and their life around triathlon. Uh, perhaps that is a good uh, good segue into discussing what are some pieces of advice for fitting triathlon training into what is typically for most age groupers a busy life, uh, even without triathlon. And then you try to do a swim, bike, and run on top of that. What right. advice can you give around that? So I think, you know, obviously, um, if you're limited on time, making sure you're maximizing every minute of that time. And even if that means breaking it up into smaller chunks that can be, fit, you know, fitted into your life. So, for example, we call it habit stacking in the, in the habit world, uh, which is, you know, say you don't have that much time, but you really want to be able to do some core activities uh, or things that are going to help just your form. Um, then doing very small amounts of that, maybe paired with having your coffee. So as your coffee brews. Uh, you know, you've got five or six minutes to bang in, you know, per day, just a little bit of core. So, for example, we, uh, my husband and I put together a, um, a, a core routine. It's a workout video, sixminsixpack.com. So it's six minutes of kind of core activity. So if you pair that with something like the brewing of your coffee, then at least you know you've gotten it in. So there's lots of little hacks like that that you can do to fit things in. Um, and then it's about, you know, quite often, if you only have short periods of time to train, so some of our athletes, maybe it's only six to eight hours a week, you know, you have to do kind of higher intensity work uh, in order to get enough load to get the fitness gains. So being specific with those types of workouts um, and then with um, uh, athletes of ours that, that have family they have young kids and things like that having novel ways to kind of have them be a part of it so for example quite a lot of our athletes as they're running their kids will be riding their bike and handing them water uh, or they'll do multiple loops around where they live so their kids can see them or be out walking um, or you know maybe they meet for breakfast and they're running to the place where they're having breakfast and um, things like that and with things like Zwift racing now you know, uh, your kids could be in there watching and cheering and having fun with the gamification of it while you're in there doing your workouts. There's just so many novel ways to uh, make your family a part of your life and then to fit things in around already existing, you know, uh, business, tough careers, things like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there are many ways to be creative around that and, and try to maximize what you're doing. I love what you mentioned there with habit stacking. It's a conversation I had just yesterday with one of, one of my athletes actually around how to fit in strength and conditioning, those short little circuits, but that tend to be more difficult to get done, funnily enough, yeah. rather than swimming, biking and running. And, right. and basically what we talked about was just that make it a habit stack uh, with your bike and run workouts that your bike and run workout doesn't start with cycling or running it starts with doing that core work or the strength right. conditioning work and and then you get to your run and bike and uh, and basically then uh, then having that time available so if it's a 45 minute run and a 15 minute circuit then that's a 60 minute slot that needs to be available right. so always stacking things uh, so yeah. yeah that's a good trick <laughs> And uh, it, what you mentioned there with uh, doing more intensity when you're time limited, uh, let's uh, dig into that a little bit. So if you have six to eight hours, as you mentioned, uh, what can you just give a, like basically an overview of what a week might look like in terms of how many swims, bikes and runs and how you might distribute the intensity in, in that week? 
Yep. So say you've got um, eight hours in the week to train. Um, you know, if you can, and, and again, it really depends on where your strengths or weaknesses lie. I think that if you're a really strong biker and poor runner or a really strong biker and a poor swimmer or something like that, you might want to have a little bit more emphasis in one of those sports, at least periodically or for phases. Uh, so in a strength phase, for example, um, you know, which might last, say, six to eight weeks, you know, before we do a speed block, uh, it might be that uh, you've got two, let's say it's evenly distributed and you've got two swims, two bikes and two runs per week um, with maybe a short brick run off one of the bikes as well. So that's kind of two and a half runs. So two of those bike sessions would probably do uh, some kind of sweet spot sustained or even tempo type work where the cadence is um, not too low, so say 60 RPMs. And then we might do another more high intensity. Uh, it might even, as long as they're ready for that strength work, sort of threshold to VO2 type work, uh, shorter intervals where we're really working high power at low RPMs, say 45 RPMs, where we're doing some seated, some standing. If they can do it on a hill, all the better. If they have to do it indoors, just cranking up the resistance. Um, and probably one of those a little bit longer, so closer to, say, two, two and a half hours. And then we'd have one of those runs off the bike where we would maybe, in the strength phase, do a bunch of plyometrics off the bike, uh, which is kind of like running. So we'd have some running intervals or maybe some hills within that. Um, but it would also kind of do the functional strength at the same time. Uh, so they wouldn't have to do as much as that, and that would reduce the time. Um, and then running wise, we'd have them do uh, a good solid hill workout, but maybe within a longer run. So, for example, the run might be 75 minutes um, and we'd have them do the hills at the end of the run. So they're a little bit tired and we're forcing good form on tired legs. So it mimics almost like running off the bike um, little tricks like that just to help. Uh, the other run might be um, some more sustained uh, uh, kind of tempo type work on road rolling terrain. Um, so you've got the high intensity on the hills and you've got the more sustained on rolling terrain. Uh, swim wise, one of those sessions um, would be definitely VO2 max type work. A lot of recovery, very, very high intensity. And the reason that we would do that is you can actually get better form if you're doing shorter high intensity intervals because you're not fatigued as much. So working on form is easier. But also, would, would you basically would you basically cap, cap the length of the intervals at yep. I don't know fifty, 50. or yeah, probably fifty initially. Uh, so it'd be either twenty five or fifties. Um, and again, like even a minute rest in between the fifties, or forty five seconds rest, or thirty seconds rest in between the twenty fives. Focusing yep. on power and and the VO two, uh, maybe even bumping it up to seventy five to get real VO two. And um, that's great because what it does is it transfers that high intensity aerobic capacity fitness across into other sports as well without the load that you get when you're running and biking on the musculature. So um, we definitely do one swim like that. And then the other swim probably sustained threshold work. So the swimming yeah. would be all high intensity with some drills in between. So certainly in things like a, a threshold set, saying you're doing a classic um, 20 by 100s of threshold, maybe you'd stop and, you know, you do 10 100s and then in the middle you do some drills and then you do another 10 100s, something like that. So you're always kind of being cognizant of the form piece as well. 
Yeah, that, thank you. That, that was a great explanation of, of a typical week. And, and I think that what I would just uh, add there to it is that when interpreting a week like that, it's kind of important to understand the context of it. It sounds like, yeah, you're doing something of quote-unquote quality every single session, but a lot of that actually like the strength work on the bike, the kind of longer strength work can be quite aerobic. And, oh, very, uh, very much so. I actually just personally got back from a bike ride with four by uh, four by eight minute hill reps at low cadence, forty five to fifty five, and uh, my heart rate never broke one hundred thirty five. I think through any of those, so kind of just at the mostly at the high end of zone two, a little bit dipping into zone three from time to time, but but basically in a ninety minute ride, I had ten minutes of time in in zone two from a heart rate perspective and the power was uh, higher than that. So, yeah, so I think, which is so, great. so I think that, yeah. So, so the point with that week is that you can do a lot of quality with the way that it's designed. Also the running hills, the form hills and so on. You don't necessarily need to do a whole lot of them. You can get a lot mm-hmm. of bang for buck there. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's a frequency of quality in there, but overall it still sounds like a good, well balanced week. Yeah. 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 And then ensuring that there's good recovery, right? So maybe you do a two week block like that and then you have a, a good one week where it's, it's unstructured and you, you know, and it's a lot more chill and it's a lot sort of more open to the athlete themselves just to kind of let loose or really hold them back. You know, it depends on what type of athlete that they are. Uh, so yeah, there's just so much uh, variety in there depending on the athlete themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the specific disciplines. So you came into triathlon from a running background, I think, mm-hmm. and had to learn how to swim the hard way, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. uh, so what advice would you give to athletes that most of us are in the same in the same position that swim is the weakness? But regardless, what are your main swimming tips? Yeah, so I think it's it really is twofold. One, obviously, technique for swimming is, is critical, right? So having someone that you really can trust, that you believe in, that can give you good feedback on your swimming technique. And you can do this remotely now. There's a lot of swimming coaches that uh, you can just have someone video you while you're swimming. So walk along poolside with their phone, uh, take, uh, take some video of you from the side and then from the front. And if you have an underwater camera like a GoPro, great, a bit of that too. Send it to a a coach and they can analyze it I mean I do some analysis for my athletes but I also have swim specific coaches that are great too and then you you sort of can come away with with good drills but I do think that in order to apply the good form you have to have the fitness to do it and that's a challenge right because if you say hey I'm just going to do all technique because technique's so important the trouble is is that if you really can't get through a hundred without you know huffing and puffing severely then you're not going to be able to apply the form so we still need a fitness piece in there and we still need to get the heart rate up and have the aerobic capacity to deal with you know having good form Uh, so I mean I love masters groups uh, for some workouts not for all workouts um, but just having that group mentality you know where you can really get pushed and push yourself and have that social uh, aspect to it is is wonderful and then in terms of swimming it really is frequency I would rather my athletes if they could get to the pool frequently you know having you know three to four 30 minute sessions and two one hour sessions and because it's about the frequency with which you get that stimulus 
process of being in the water and understanding, we call it that feel for the water, which I'm sure a lot of you guys out there have, have, have heard about before. Uh, another aspect to this which really changed my training was, was strength work specific to swimming. And that can be challenging to achieve just in the gym. Uh, maybe you've got swim cords, that's great. But I actually have what's called a VASA ergometer, uh, which is a swim bench, almost like a rowing machine, but you're on your front, you have paddles, it measures wattage, it measures meters covered. And the, the wonderful thing about this is I actually have a mirror below me and a mirror to the side of me. So I get real-time feedback in terms of my stroke. Okay, it's not in the water, but at least I can see the muscle recruitment patterns because when you're swimming, of course, you don't get that real-time feedback more, more often than not. Um, you know, you're doing your length, then you're getting your feedback. You're doing your swim, then you stop, then you get your feedback, and then you try and apply it again. Um, and not only that, because I'm able to recruit the right muscles and make them nice and strong, I then get in the water, and all of a sudden the feel for the water, the way that I grab the water is a lot more powerful powerful and that's been incredibly helpful for me yeah those are some uh, some really great uh, great pieces of advice there what would you say is a go-to workout that that you prescribe often maybe more often than than most other workouts i would have said it is there's two different workouts i would say that are my keys um the the longer ones i love 400s that mix in drills with hard work Um, so you actually do the drills pretty hard. So we'll do stuff like 50 clenched fist drill, sprinting, and then 50 easy breath holding. And we'll keep repeating that for a 400. So sets like that where you're getting endurance, you're getting a bit of intensity, you're getting form all at the same time is, is really, really cool. I love those kind of workouts. And then uh, my other favorite one is my 50s workouts. It's a pretty classic set that a lot of triathletes, I'm sure they do it. It's the, the, the 40 fifties where you start off with 16 fifties every fourth one, a uh, maximal effort, um, on less rest. And then you do 12 fifties every third one hard. Then you do eight every other. Then you finish off with four all out, uh, with a lot more rest. And that's a pretty cool set. Yeah. I think. Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth calls that the spike set, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a classic, definitely. Um, what about cycling then, if we move on to your key piece of advice for cycling? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think cycling more than any any more than any other discipline the strength is is a critical piece and the torque training for me revolutionized my cycling because i came from a running background i had wonderful aerobic development but what was happening on the bike was i couldn't get my heart rate up and a large piece of that was because i didn't have the musculature i didn't have the strength to stress the cardio system and i think that any at any point in the season right it's like this kind of balance this push and pull between strength and almost like aerobic capacity and and you peak at the point at which your strength is just starting to come off the boil and your aerobic capacity is like at it's like oh absolutely critical and that's when you're peaking but then what happens if you try and sustain that um then your strength falls away and you no longer have the strength to keep stressing that cardio system so that's when i come back and revisit strength pieces again so the low torque training on climbing um and so i'll have my athletes break up their season in two generally so we'll do a bunch of the strength work across the winter and um, we'll come into race season with all our speed work we'll hit a good block of racing for two or three months and then we'll go back and we'll revisit the strength work for the fall uh, for the fall races so that's generally how i periodize their their training protocols 
Yeah, that's, that's really good. And do you do how how do you do any specific training for with regard to off road triathlon and Xterra? Yeah. What what are, what might differ for athletes focusing on that compared yeah. to just normal on road triathlon? Absolutely. So I'll do a lot of functional strength work so that I have the balance to be able to move the, the mountain bike around on trails and the body around while I'm running on trails. Uh, I'll be out in the trails uh, in the in the winter season at least once a week. Uh, normally I'll do actually an aerobic ride uh, out on the trails because what I love to do is to give myself a heart rate restriction on a course that's pretty tough. So I have to slow down the cadence and slow down the effort to get over the terrain, right? And it forces good balance, uh, uh, good good form. Um, it's aerobic because I'm keeping my heart rate lower and it, it, it requires sort of strength to be able to do that. So you're kind of encapsulating technique into an actual session, which is pretty cool. Um, then when I come towards race seasons, um, I'll do things like mountain bike races, uh, but what I'll do, I have probably about three or four different race courses that I have created with different terrain, depending on the the, the, the terrain of the race that, that I'm building up towards. And I'll mimic those race courses and I'll do things like I call them hot laps, right? So uh, maybe I have a course where the, the race course is 15 minutes long. So it's almost like a 15 minute race intensity effort, but on a similar terrain as my race course. And I'll maybe do four or five of those with a break in between each one. Um, yeah. you know and i'll get people out there with me racing with me and all that good stuff all right so is, is it fair to say that in the base training period it, it's you still recommend going out on the trails uh, once per week or so but keeping it mostly aerobic but then when you get to the specific preparation then you start to try to get it as specific as possible and and try to do race intensity specifically on on terrain that as close as possible as, as far as you can get it mimics the race course Big time. Plus as well, you know, a lot of athletes don't realize that they can actually ride their mountain bike on the road. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, if you're wanting to get specificity and then you feel like you can't get that in on a trail. So say you have a session that is, you know, hey, my coach wants me to do 10 by two minute hills or something like that. Well, get out on your mountain bike. So you're in that position. Do your intensity on a, on a hill outside on the road and then finish up your ride on some trails for the fun of it, for the technique. And um, there's so many different ways to kind of combo it yeah perfect uh and uh, so we already mentioned a couple of good sessions there do you have any other go-to session that you want to to highlight on the um, bike i i would say uh, on the bike um I love doing the odd crazy workout, which is all about mental toughness. So we're lucky here in California, we have some big, big climbs. So every now and again, maybe it's once a month, I'll come up with a crazy workout, which is something like, you know, we have a climb here that's four and a half thousand feet and I've done it three times in a row. Um, so I'll do something that is about kind of a mental challenge. Um, and that just really helps build that, uh, we call it the anterior cingulate cortex, the thing that, that uh, assesses uh, how things feel in your body. And it sort of makes it grow bigger and stronger, essentially. All right, cool. And uh, then uh, moving on to the run, what, what's your advice around the, the run part of training? So, you know, technique is so important because it's about efficiency. Um, and the more efficient you are, then you're going to be able to cover ground faster um, with a lower heart rate. And that's really what 
what it is that we're looking for here. Uh, also, injury prevention. I think that that's so, so key. And I think if you just bang in the miles and hit the track all the time, you're not going to be either strong enough to cope uh, with the power that's going through your feet and pushing through the ground, uh, but also your propensity for injury goes up. So making sure you're doing a lot of functional strength, that's what really took my running. Uh, fu functional strength work, that's what really took my running to the next level. And then for me specifically, doing a lot of hill reps really, really helped uh, for the muscle durability because I find that I didn't have the strength to sustain across long periods of time. So um, I'd, I'd do a lot of plyometrics and hills off the bike um, in that strength phase, and then I convert that to speed. And I love, love, love to use a treadmill as well, not all the time, but for some key workouts, as long as you get used to it, uh, especially off the bike. It's like a training partner to do some high-intensity, high-leg turnover work. Yeah, that's that's really good. And uh, can we go into some specifics on a couple of key sessions again? Perhaps one that I would like to hear about is uh, is the hill reps again. If you can specify yep. one of your favorite hill yeah, rep yeah, workouts, yeah. and then maybe so, something else. Yep. So I have a, a really really steep. It's I think it's uh, eighteen to twenty percent grade. Uh, wow. shorter, shorter hill <laughs> yeah. where I am. So at the bottom of the hill, I'll do squat jumps. So I do twenty like really low squat jumps to kind of load the leg, and then for the first half, and then I'll go straight into the hill rep, which is about I think ninety seconds long. And for the first forty five seconds, I'm actually just doing hill bounds. So think of a triple jumper before they do the double jump, and they're doing a bound. So I bound like that for, you know, 30, 45 seconds. And then I, I, I break into kind of a high cadence, a, a sort of speed power section to finish it off and then jog back. So it's a really fun way of developing form, technique, muscle durability, plus some, you know, you build up into higher intensity, get that uh, aerobic capacity building as well. That's really cool. Uh, it's, it sounds like a, a mixture of, Steve Magnus's uh, strength circuits and yeah. Arthur Ledyard's hill bounding period. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's so a good old combo. <laughs> yeah, uh, awesome. And, and do you have another run that you want to to highlight? Something different than than the hill work? Yep. So um, what I love to do off a uh, hard, uh, normally it's a group ride I'll do this off. So as I'm coming up to races, I love to do the, we have some wonderful group rides here in San Diego that are incredibly high intensity. And when you look at my power files, the amount of kind of VO2 work threshold work I'm getting is incredible. Um, and I'll do that and it can be anywhere from sort of two to four hours worth of work. And then I'll do a treadmill, uh, a high intensity treadmill run off the bike, which is 45 to 60 minutes. And I call it my three to to one session so it's um uh, three minutes of kind of 10k pace then a minute easy then two minutes of 5k pace then one minute easy then one minute just all out and then three minutes easy and i'll do that kind of four or five times through it's, it's pretty insane uh, that's that sounds very fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you're done it's fun yeah Exactly. Uh, all right. And, uh, and in terms of the run part of off-road triathlon, how, how, how do you advise people take that into account? I mean, yeah. regular runs on trails as much as possible, I guess. Is there anything else that you would... Yeah, the strength, again, is such, such such a huge piece because if you don't have the muscle durability to cope with the hills that they normally throw at you with Xterra, then you're going to cramp uh, and you're just not going to be able to cope. Not only that, you have that sort of multi-plane movement, right? You're going over obstacles sometimes, you're just moving in different 
different uh, paths, kind of, you know, slightly to the right, slightly to the left. So if you don't have the kind of core stability, the glute engagement, all of the strong muscles to be able to deal with that, you're going to cramp. Um, so that's where the hill work is, is really, really important. Furthermore, the nutrition piece, that is essential uh, when you come to Xterra because the intensity and the torque on your body is so, so high. You're redlining all the time and coming back. The duration of it, even although it looks like it's an Olympic distance triathlon, the actual impact on your body is almost more like a half Ironman. Um, and when you're mountain biking, of course, you're so distracted by everything that you have to do. A lot of athletes forget to, you know, get the calories in and to get the electrolytes and fluids in. Um, so what I always recommend to athletes is pre-ride a course have designated spots in the course where you know you're going to take on your nutrition you can get your hands off the bars um i wear a camel pack so that it's easy for me to get the fluids and the nutrition in um, and i'll do stuff like and um, put my gels on the top tube of my bike so the nutrition piece is really critical if you're going to run effectively i mean it's critical in any any triathlon but i think because of all of the things thrown at you on the mountain bike uh, most folks forget it and as a consequence they fall apart in the run yeah and, and what you mentioned there with the strength part uh, at the beginning makes perfect sense for exterior in particular but but there i, I would just like to add that if, even if we're talking about sprint distance triathlon running off the bike in a triathlon even the sprint is a strength challenge it's not a speed challenge 100 so so i think that all of those workouts really apply 100 to to any triathlon distance uh, on road or off road yeah 100 percent then you mentioned a little bit about periodization already uh, with how you structure uh, the year into basically a strength phase and then the speed phase that falls into a competitive phase. Can, can you just elaborate a bit on, on that? Yeah, so it really depends on what type of athlete you are. Is it Xterra or is it um, Ironman? We coach a lot of Ironman athletes or half Ironman athletes. So generally what we'll do is strength and then we'll do um, speed and then we'll do race specificity. So we'll do the strength. Uh, and as we go through that phase, we build up the intensity of the strength intervals. So we'll be going from, you know, sort of a, a lower tempo effort, a little bit like the intervals you spoke about today. And then we'll actually start to do those more towards your sweet spot, your threshold. Um, and then maybe even we'll put some sort of VO2 at that kind of strength phase right towards the back end of it. Then we'll transition into uh, more of just classic uh, threshold VO2 type work with a little bit of sustained tempo in there, just actually at a strength, uh, 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 kind of still incorporating a little bit of strength protocol so that we're maintaining some of that strength while doing all of the speed work. And then we'll go into race specificity. So certainly if you're an Ironman athlete, we're then building out kind of building out your endurance um, as we as we kind of move towards that race. If you're Xterra, it's race-specific intensities. Um, so yeah, strength, nice high intensity, then race specificity is how we periodize it. And then we generally will have two phases in a season. So we'll do a, we'll do a nice phase like that, hit some races for three months, do the same phase again, then hit another few, you know, three, three months of races. Yeah. All right. Perfect. And, uh, we talked a little bit already about, uh, intensity as it pertains to, uh, time crunched athletes, but just in general, uh, what, what's your view on balancing volume and intensity? Uh, in particular, perhaps this is an important question with athletes that have perhaps more time available to train. How, how do you balance, find, find that balance? Yeah. That's a really good question. It's such an individual thing because athletes can handle different, 
intensity at different times, a different load on their body. Um, I myself, obviously, I'm an elite athlete, right? I can actually cope with a lot of intensity and a lot of volume at the same time. Um, And I've trained my body to do that over years. And as a good coach once said to me, more is more but only if you can cope with it, right? So, so, you know, the trouble is, is most people can. And that's not just the physical piece of it, but the mental side of it as well. So I think it's looking at all of the metrics that we have and understanding the load that is on an athlete's body and how they seem to be coping with it. We have all sorts of wonderful things like HRV that we can track. Um, We have mood diaries and just corresponding with the athlete to see how they're doing mentally. Um, But more often than not, most of our athletes are going to want to push too hard. They have that A-type personality. So I think as a coach, the accountability on me to actually hold them back and give them good, proper recovery phases is what's really, really critical. So for us, it's just a fine balance, right, of how much we can push, um, how much intensity with, 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 with how much volume, um, and obviously where that is in relation to the race. So you, you mentioned HRV and and mood diaries. I'm curious, given Simon's background, especially, do you use tools like the profile of mood states on a regular basis, or is it, uh, or, yeah, do, do you do that or, or other similar yeah. tools? Um, you know, definitely we do, and we have them uploaded uh, onto Training Peaks. You know, in their comments, um, and that's really, really helpful for us. And it's helpful for them too, just to reassess when things were going well and when they weren't. Because I think when you're an athlete in the moment, you think you're feeling a certain way, and then you look back and you're like, oh, actually, maybe not. It's easy to kind of self sabotage or change it in your own mind as to where you're at in any given time. Um, and then again, it's purely just having a communication pathway with our athletes, making sure that we're talking to them and listening to them um, and kind of prying information out of them. Uh, that that would be one of the single best things to help an athlete maximize her potential and not not push it too hard, not push it too far, but also push it enough. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to execu- execution of the different types of workouts, so if we start by, with the uh, low-intensity workouts, for example, how do you like to prescribe them? Uh, for example, do you like to work with heart rate or with power and pace or RPE? And, uh, and, and what is kind of your general prescription in terms of how hard or how easy should, should they be? Yep. easy or endurance workouts so generally what we'll do with our athletes is when they come on board with them we'll do some kind of testing just basic testing to get some uh, uh, either heart rate zones power zones um or some kind of distance most athletes will require them to have at minimum a heart rate monitor just so they understand the intensity and even if they have an issue with that because we have had some athletes that only like to use perceived exertion because they've gotten too obsessed with the data we'll have them do stuff like wear their heart rate monitor or power meter and actually tape it over so they cannot see it, uh, but we can. Um, and then we'll do some questionnaires with them about how hard they thought they were going relative to what the actual value tells us. And that sees where that discrepancy is. So, you know, generally at minimum, we, we like a heart rate monitor that's pretty cheap to get just so that we can sort of at least have some sense of the intensities that we're working on. And we'll, we'll uh, create heart rate zones uh, for the bike and the run based off some testing that we do. Uh, obviously, the gold standard for biking is a power meter. So anyone that comes to us with a power meter that's great it just gives us more data to assess how any given session is impacting them how they're doing across periods of time along with the feedback that they're giving us but we don't get too obsessed with data because it's not 
as accurate as it is, it's also inaccurate. You know, it's based off of lots of different formulas that, you know, you know, I can have a, a, a piece of data tell me, hey, listen, you're tired today or, hey, listen, you feel great today and I just feel like shit, you know, um, for whatever reason. Maybe it's hormonal, maybe it's the argument I had with my husband or, or whatnot. So you've got to take it with, a, 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 you know, a pinch of salt and just be like, yeah. okay, it's important, but it's not everything. Yeah. Do, do you prescribe the workouts by, for example, on the bike, by power, if the athlete comes with a power meter? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we and, do. So we, everything is kind you... of zone-based, right? So they have their zones, their power zones and their heart rate zones. And a session will be, you know, there'll be a warm-up, then there'll be a main set, which is, you know, say it's your four by eight minutes on a climb at, you know, 45 RPMs in this zone. Um, so they're very detailed sessions that you're getting. Um, and then we'll also have sessions where it's a free run session. Um, so for some athletes that, that struggle with too much structure, we make sure there's sessions in there where they can just kind of let loose and go for it. And, 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 you know, we can sort of see what it is that they do, but they need a bit of freedom too. Yeah. And a final question on, on that topic. What, what is kind of the, If you if an athlete comes home from a an endurance run and uh, they say oh this felt easy uh, and but you look at the data and and the, uh, the speed was maybe a bit higher it was in zone three rather than in zone two for most of the time but they actually said that well it felt really easy I was I could speak with my body and everything what to you is the gold standard is it the RPE the athlete's feedback or is it the actual data the pace or the heart rate. I do think it's a little bit of a combination of both, right? In so much as uh, if an athlete is very, very fresh and they've come off a recovery week, then yeah, that, you know, zone high zone two, low zone three is probably going to feel really easy and their heart rate is going to get up quickly. Um, so kind of just letting them settle into that and enjoy that feeling rather than be, oh, you have to run, you know, at zone two, you have to, have to, have to. Now, if they're coming back from injury, if they have a long history of overtraining, if we know that they've been tired, then we have to have some pretty honest conversations with them. Like, listen, that might have felt easy, but we see a pattern with you that this is what you do. And then we hit you with a hard session you can't cope with it because you're always kind of going moderate um or you know look at your injury history you always get injured or you always get overtrained so while you think it might be easy there's a reason we're giving you this so let's look at all of the pieces and explain it to you so that you understand but then at some point you know, the athlete has to uh, take responsibility for that. And we give them the information. We say, listen, this is why we're having you do this. This is what we've noticed in your past. But at the end of the day, this is your training. You've got to do what's happy for you. As long as you know what might happen, if you continue to push a little bit harder than we really want you to, that's okay. But but it's your decision. Yeah, oh, that, that is a really great answer. I, I love that. And uh Yeah, it's funny that that question is definitely one that you can't answer that this is the best or that is the best. It's basically a question that invites somebody to elaborate on a topic. And I think that uh, the way you did that there was, was absolutely brilliant. Okay. Um, but uh, let's move on to the, the high intensity workouts. Uh, well, first of all, one thing that I'm uh, always very curious to hear is what's your opinion on when you're doing some sort of high intensity work intervals whether they be above a you know, threshold or below it doesn't really matter but a hard workout with intervals do you tend to prescribe or tell athletes to look you should maybe leave one rep left in the tank you should have a little bit left in you and not 
go completely all out or be completely wasted at the end of the session? Or do you think that those sessions uh, also have their time and place and, uh, and that it's okay for athletes to really empty the tank in those hard workouts? I think, again, you've got to do a bit of everything. So we want a diverse athlete that can mentally and physically cope with any scenario that comes their way. So we have the athletes that always finish with something left in the tank because there's a lot of fear there. And in that regard, sometimes I'll get them to go out and say, give me everything. I don't care if you completely blow up and have to walk home. We just want to mentally and physically take you to that place so that you can sort of uh, face that fear and overcome it. Other athletes that just always do that, we want to hold them back, right? So I think it's knowing the athlete and how they generally will do things and say, let's work to the contrary of that so that we can make you as diverse as possible. So I think there's a time and place to really actually do every style of, of, of session. Yeah, that is great. And uh, similarly to the question on prescription for low-intensity workouts, do you still tend to prescribe the power zones, pace zones for for those high intensity workouts? Uh, is that kind of the the main prescription you give you give the athletes? Yeah, and again, it depends on how short the intervals are, um, because um, if we're doing sort of all out intervals, um, while there'll be some kind of power zone. Um, the heart rate becomes a little bit more challenging because it's maybe not long enough to stimulate the heart rate. Um, but if it's a power, yes, there will be some kind of parameter. But at the same time, I think you've kind of got to let loose when it's a really hard stuff and let them go for it to see that to make sure that the zones you've created are not limiters because it all depends on how well the testing went when you actually created those zones um, and what scenarios were in place when the testing took place and how long ago that testing was so how accurate you know some of those values are along the way is going to dictate where those zones are so you want some freedom to it uh, but at the same time sort of uh, some level of prescription as well so it can be a bit woolly sometimes but uh, that's the balance between the mental and the physical all right uh that's really great and I, I noticed here this is uh the first time that this has happened but i actually printed the, the wrong set of questions so i've been working uh off a different, oh, different list of questions than, than the one that i that i had planned for you so <laughs> many of them are kind of similar but uh, we have yeah. missed some questions that i did have in and plan for you so so let's get into them here and uh and i guess what, one of the key things here is the the difference that between off-road triathlon and and on-road triathlon like we talked about the training differences but in terms of uh perhaps the racing demands and the racing itself. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So mentally, it's a lot, lot different, right? Because you're having to cope with the terrain. So there's technical aspects that you're really having to address as you go along. And there can be a lot of fear there for athletes, especially on the mountain bike portions. Oh my gosh, is this really technical section? Am I going to be able to do it? Am I going to fall off? Am I going to hurt myself? Um, so obviously, technical practice is really important. So going out in different types of terrain, uh, finding loops that you can do to just do again and again and again getting some advice getting some feedback on that and working the technical aspects so that you feel comfortable um, and then having the fitness to be able to deal with the technical stuff that's going to come across you so your heart rate might be 
180 and you're having to go over some kind of rock garden, say. Um, so practicing high intensity at the same time as the technical is, is another huge piece. Um, and then you've got things like passing athletes on trails and, you know, you're always having to be mentally engaged during an Xterra. There's no real time to zone out unless you've got a big long climb or a big sustained flat section. Um, so I think it's just ensuring that you have that mental acuity at the same time as being physically stressed. Um, so that's a real critical piece. And then as we've, we've talked about a lot um, on, on this podcast is the strength. Because you're exerting so much torque and force through your body because the terrain is dictating it and you are not for the most part, um, then you have to have a body that can cope with that. So some courses might have a lot of twists and turns where you're accelerating out of the corners again and again and again. Uh, so that's, you know, multiple times you're having high forces on, on your muscles like sprinting. Um, and then maybe you have like a really short, steep uh, technical climb that you have to get up and over where you're having to balance at the same time as, you know, having a lot of torque on your legs. So there's just a lot of like a lot of motion and movement and planes of motion where you're generating force through muscles and tendons that you, you, you wouldn't do if you're just in one position on the time trial bike for long periods of time. So being as diverse as possible is, is key. Um, and then um, making sure you get your nutrition in so that when you get to the run, a lot of Xterra athletes struggle with the run in Xterra uh, because they haven't got their nutrition right and they don't have the strength to cope with the demands of the mountain bike then onto the run where it's equal as demanding in terms of the hills and the ins and the outs. Um, so all of the hills, all of the plyo and the functional strength work is really your 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 bread and butter for a good run at Xterra. Yeah, no, that's that's all really great. And uh, about the racing aspect, what advice do you have in terms of pacing uh, a, a race on the bike and on the run in particular? So I think it's knowing your course, right? So making sure you've looked ahead at the type of course that it is, how many climbs are there? Is it twisty turny? Where do you think the demands on the course are going to be? So most Xterra athletes will have a chance to pre-ride the course the day before, a couple of days before their actual race, which is great because it gives you a sense of where you're going to have to put out effort because often in the course, as I said before, the terrain dictates that kind of output. Put. So you want to know where that is in the course and making sure you have enough energy to do so and that you haven't burned too much you know too many matches in the other sections of the course such that you can meet that demand so it really is about the demands of the course um uh, that is going to help you pace an Xterra. yeah um what about the gear and equipment what uh, this is of course a vast topic that could deserve multiple podcast episodes but just some high-level items that you think are important to consider when it comes to to the gear selection uh, yep. in terms of exterior racing? So I think a, a huge part, obviously, is the bike. Um, so a lot of athletes now are using dual suspension bikes. And the reason being is that it, it dampens the sort of the, the muscle damage um, um, you know, from, from all of the bumps, basically, because if you're on a hard tail, it's a lot harder on your body so that you're fresher coming off onto the run. And the reason people are moving more towards dual suspension is yes, because of that, but also because uh, with better technology now, the bikes are lighter. Um, so the old issues of, um, you know, hey, it's so much heavier having a dual suspension uh, bike 
isn't really there to the same capacity as it used to be. For smaller athletes like myself, it is still a bit of an issue. I'm only kind of five foot two. And, you know, my, my dual suspension bike is still kind of, gosh, about five pounds heavier than my hardtail bike, which for me is I'm a hundred pounds, right? So that's, you know, 5% of my body weight. That's, quite a lot if it's a, a lot of climbing on the course. So you really have to weigh up what the course is like. And if you're lucky enough to to have two different types of bikes, which I am, and especially because I'm smaller, but most kind of normal size people will have a dual suspension bike probably. And then they'll have wheels that are either 29ers or 27.5. And for smaller athletes, a 27.5 is good um, just because it's, it allows the, the body position to be a little bit better and it's more nimble. Um, the 29er is just great for for rolling over things. And that's what kind of most people will have these days. So um, that's a bite piece of it. And then you kind of get into all sorts of things like suspension and how you measure it and, you know, entire choice, entire pressure. And, you know, that's a whole minefield of, of that. It's very course specific. It's how you like to handle your bike, testing all these things. And really, you don't have to to, to get too obsessed with it to do jump into Xterra but you know as you go on right you pick up little bits that you sort of really get can get nerdy about which is cool um yeah and then making sure you've got enough system on your um uh, bike for nutrition so whether that's two bottle cages or a camelback or anything like that i think those pieces of uh, equipment are really are really key yeah you, you said you raced with a camelback right yeah i do yeah I just, right. just, you know, it's one of those things where my bike is pretty small, so it only really fits one bottle on it. And you really, in most Xterra courses, you're going to need two bottles. And I don't like to rely on feed stations just in case. And uh, and also as well, a lot of the courses can be, you know, say they're twisty turning. It's just easier to have your little straw there. And it's a, a, a children's one. It's very, very small. It's enough for kind of one to two bottles, but it, I'm just used to it now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's really, really good to hear. Actually, that uh, up to the level of a world champion, you you can actually find that the, the Camelback is the best choice. I, I'm surprised, but uh, now that you hear it, now that I hear you explain it, it makes total sense in the world. So, uh, so that's yeah, that's really cool. Um, then one one more question around uh, not Xterra, but moving on to back to the general sort of coaching side of things what do you think can, can you discuss and elaborate on the art and the science of coaching and training yeah gosh great question it um the art of it comes in uh, knowing an athlete knowing this sport and the demands of it and how to kind of mesh and meld the physical demands and what you want to achieve physically with what's going on mentally as well with the athlete i think the art becomes the mental piece almost and the science becomes the physical piece and then creativity of how you can accomplish goals in different ways you know i mentioned before about the the hill reps and doing the squat jumps into the bounds into the intensity that's achieving a lot of different things in a different way it's stimulating you know i'll do that session off the bike when i'm already tired so it's stimulating mental toughness in it 
a different way. It's incorporating strength and power. It's uh, working on form and technique. It's also working on intensity. It's segmenting so that you can keep engaged throughout the workout, given that I'm tired as I'm doing it off the bike. There's so many cool ways to achieve all of those aspects in just one session. And that's where the creativity comes in. Right. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Then, uh, as you mentioned, you and your husband, Simon, uh, Simon did write a book, uh, I think, a couple of years ago, The yep. Brave Athlete uh, on Sports Psychology. And it's a great one. I have uh, I listened to it one or two years ago, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll try to have Simon on as well, and we can mm-hmm. discuss sports psychology on a, a follow-up sure. episode. But uh, But just as a teaser to that, how important is mindset and psychology in triathlon and endurance sports i think it's everything to be honest i think without it you're just not going to have any success or you know joy or fulfillment and really our sport is like a form of therapy it's a chance to understand how you work and to really um you know, uh, tackle some difficult inner demons that you have. So, you know, by really digging into that um, through mental training, not only are you going to maximize your potential in the sport and all of the roadblocks that you might have to whether it's, um, you know, uh, motivation, commitment, anxiety, fear, uh, low self-esteem, any one of those aspects, body image issues, um, once you sort of have the tools and you can work on those different aspects, it's just going to make you uh, as a performance pe- person just better, right? Um, and also as well, you can take that over into other aspects of your life, business life, family life. You know, if it's low self-esteem or low self-worth that you're working on in your sport and you're digging into the weeds and some of that stuff and why you're making the decisions that you're making in any given year or sport or throughout a race, that's going to have an impact on your family life or your relationship. Um, so it really is the whole package and it really determines how successful you can be what are the one to three most common um, issues that you help your athletes with in terms of sports um, ecology yeah the most common one i would say is panic attacks in the swim and a lot of fear in open water swims and swim starts um so we'll do a lot of things like um understanding where that fear comes from uh getting to know the athlete themselves and kind of picking at the the deeper levels of that um and then coming up with different breathing exercises and breath, different kind of counting patterns and different ways to segment it different tactics at the start of the race things that you can do before it building things like uh, an alter ego um you know uh which can be applied to all of the sports Um, and then practicing you know coming up with specific sessions where they can practice that stimulus so that they can really know uh, how to combat it in real time so we'll have our athletes go out with 10 or 15 of their friends and we'll simulate the start of a race so that we can really practice and prepare for what they might uh, come across on race day so the swimming piece is really really huge um, the other one is, um, as I say, low low self-esteem or low self-worth. And so um, feeling like an imposter, like you don't really belong there, that you're not good enough to do this. And um, and and to that, you know, I, I too myself have dealt a lot with that. And that's where I came up with my alter ego. So certainly in our book, we have um, a, how to create one. So essentially, it's about creating this character that has all of the attributes that you wish you had. 
uh, for, you know, for your event, for example. So my alter ego is an AMMA fighter. Think Conor McGregor. Um, he doesn't give a shit what anyone thinks about him. He keeps on fighting no matter what, and he always gets up if he's been knocked down. So those are some qualities that I didn't have before that I really wanted to have for my sport. And so um, I created this alter ego. Again, coming from an acting background, right, I thought about, I watched a lot of videos of Conor McGregor, some of his behaviours, some of his body posture, Um you know, the way he clenches his fist or he looks, um, some different talking patterns, music, uh, all of those things, which we actually know in science, things like body posture actually has an impact on your hormones. It reduces cortisol levels, it increases other hormones in your body that can help. Um, so, gosh, that's just a couple of things that we, we get into on the mental side. Yeah, that's really good. And uh, looking forward to a future episode where we can dig into more of that. Uh, one final question about uh, triathlon and Xterra in particular. I interviewed Melanie McQuaid, who I'm sure you raced many times uh, a year or so ago, maybe two years ago. Okay. And uh, what impressed me about her is that she has been very successful both on the off-road scene and uh, and on-road in half and full distance triathlon. Uh, I'm just wondering how... How easy do you think is it to be to have success on both of those uh, scenes? I mean, she's not the only one. Flora Duffy comes to mind, of course, and yep. many others. But uh, yep. but is, is are those the rare exceptions, or is it similar enough that if you do a little bit of specific training, you can easily have success at both? You can easily have success at both. Um, I think what it ultimately comes down to is your joy for where your sport is. So, for example, I had a, a bunch of success in 70.3s early on, but I just didn't really love it the way that I do the off-road stuff. And so I chose to focus there. So I think if you still have a lot of joy for, for on-road, it's it's complementary it can help your off-road uh, especially if you're doing things like 70.3s because you get that durability right because you're racing you know four or five six hours right that's going to be wonderful training at the right time of the season for your Xterra um, so and equally the Xterra you know the high intensity the torque uh, the extremities of what you're having to deal with uh, if you then go and race a sprint distance or Olympic distance triathlon you have so much durability and high intensity capability and mental toughness to deal with you know the demands of that kind of racing yeah perfect uh then let's move into the rapid fire questions so uh, take just one sentence to answer these and uh, the first question is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports oh uh, i like uh, mindset by carol dweck yeah that's uh i haven't read it i have uh read a lot of her stuff though it's uh it's, it's really wonderful. important stuff yeah um what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment um it is my facet ergometer for my swim i love it all right and finally what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success it is rewarding myself for the tough days. So making sure that I, I give myself a pat on the back when I do well, because too often we uh, forget about all of that good stuff and we're always looking towards the future instead of being in the moment. Yeah. Do you have any other reward other than a pat on the back? Do you Chocolate. Have chocolate. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Leslie, this has been absolutely fascinating. I think I could talk for hours with you. Uh, I'm cool. so so intrigued by everything that you've uh, 
talked about. It's been really great. But uh, for now, uh, let's uh, say goodbye and tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and on, on the internet and find your coaching business and your book. Yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram, Leslie Does Try. And uh, yeah, check out our website, braveheartcoach.com. Uh, the workout video I was telling you about, sixminsixpack.com. Um, and then our book is The Brave Athletes, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. And you can get that on Amazon, Audible, anything you like. Yeah. And uh, on Audible, uh, you and Simon narrate it yourself. So, so that's something that I... I always enjoy that when uh, when when authors read the book themselves on Audible. It always adds an extra touch of personality to it. Great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much, Leslie. This has been Pleasure. great. Okay. Thanks, bud. Cheers. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we will have links to Leslie's personal website and the Braveheart coaching website, as well as uh, her social media. And the book is called The Brave Athlete, Calm the Fuck Down and Rise to the Occasion. It is written together with her husband, Simon Marshall. And as we mentioned in the interview, uh, we are planning on having an interview with both Leslie and Simon on the specific topic of sports psychology in hopefully the not too distant future. And if Xterra or Offroad Triathlon is your jam, then I would highly recommend that you go and listen to episode 196 of that triathlon show, which was an interview with Melanie McQuaid. Actually, I recommend anybody who hasn't listened to that interview go and listen to it, because Melanie was uh, really one of my favorite interviewees of all time. And much like this interview, uh, we did cover a lot of general training philosophies, not, not just uh, relating to Xterra. If you are looking for coaching services or training plans, uh, you know where to go, uh, scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, that's where we have all the information about that. And you can always send me an email and inquire if you have any further, uh, further questions. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race. And get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.